This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Hire.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hire.com slash freelancership. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 173 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Jonathan Stark. Hello. Ruben Lerner. Hi, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, this week, we're going to be talking about evaluating yourself, evaluating your business, and then possibly reinventing or you know changing directions. Jonathan kind of brought this up a couple weeks ago when we did an episode about um, what you should do on a regular basis. Eric was talking about that he takes time every three months or so to kind of evaluate where he's at and where he wants to go from there. And Jonathan recommended that we keep in our back pocket a topic of reinventing yourself to move your business forward. I'm kind of curious, have you done this before, Jonathan? Yes, I've done it um, probably five or six times. Ooh, and we got, you're, you're the guest this week. Okay. <laughs> wow. And, and, how, and how long of a time period? Um, since 2001 or so. So oh, wow. in the last, what's that, like 14, 15 years. So your career path looks like everyone else's in development, right? Every two years they change jobs? Sort of. It's weird. I, like in my mind, it's kind of like a Nautilus shell where I've just t- I divert from what I'm currently doing into a deeper thing. Um, there have been some more drastic changes from time to time, but I've done it many times. So when I think about it, I went from like my first real job ever. You know, I went to music school. I was doing the rock star thing, which means I was waiting on tables and eventually got a real job to pay real bills when I got to a certain age. And that job was doing computer stuff at Staples you know, like Staples Office Supply Headquarters, which is near where I live. And I was doing graphic design in Quark Express way, way, way back on those Jelly iMacs. And I remember those. Yeah. I just sort of, you know, one thing led to another. And I was doing that. It was like through a placement agency. Uh, eventually, I got hired there. And eventually, I was like, this is, there's no system here whatsoever. I need an access database. So that, because I was familiar with access database for doing mailing lists for my band. And the people there were like, oh, we don't have uh, we don't have access, but we have this thing called FileMaker, uh, which is really easy database thing, uh, really easy to use database software. So I created this thing. Uh, It was a big hit. I started doing FileMaker work there full time. And so I sort of transitioned from graphic design to database stuff. It's kind of it's not pure database. It's kind of like uh, it's more like application development, really, really light, easy application development. So I did that for a while and uh, I really liked it. So then I quit there and I went to a company and I started as a junior developer doing FileMaker development as a consultant. And I did that. I worked my way up at that company, ended up managing the place, left there when I kind of had a falling out of, you know, I didn't really have a falling out. I was like, I didn't like yeah. that we're billing by the hour and I wanted to change the way we did that. The boss was like, I don't know how to pull that off. So I was like, that's cool, but I'm going to go solo. So I went solo. And right around that time, I was really getting into the web. So went from FileMaker, then I went to, uh, I wanted to start doing web stuff, but I had a pretty good name for myself. I had a good reputation for myself in the FileMaker community. So I didn't want to just go jump straight to web. I wanted to kind of pull my audience with me. So I started doing FileMaker web stuff. So any projects that were specifically had both components. 
and that was kind of predicated on the release of uh, some software that FileMaker announced at the time that I was like, perfect timing. You know, I'm, I'm going to go solo. Uh, I want to keep doing FileMaker stuff. I want to keep some FileMaker clients, but I want to focus on this particular aspect of this particular niche. So it was like really, really focused down. And that went great. And over time, I felt like I kind of exhausted that industry or that small pond. It was a really small pond. And I felt like I exhausted it. So I dropped the FileMaker stuff and I just did web stuff for maybe a year. And it was like PHP, MySQL type stuff. This was before Rails. It was, there were a couple of PHP frameworks, but it was mostly, mostly just generic web stuff. Really, that was kind of a, not a great period. It was okay, but it was kind of boring. And then all of a sudden, 2007 rolls around and Steve Jobs comes on stage and announces the iPhone. And I was like, that's what I'm doing from now on. So I went from doing like just generic web development to doing mobile web and just one thing led to another. And once I was into mobile web, I was doing dev all the time. And then after a while, I was like, you know what? Dev is really, it's really risky. It's stressful. I just want to manage dev teams or I just want to give them advice about strategically uh, what my clients should do in mobile. So I just transitioned from doing actual dev work uh, in mobile to, you know, being a mobile strategist. And that's what I'm doing now. So that was probably kind of a long, long answer to question. But that's the list of the sort of transitions. Once becoming an adult and doing like a real job, that's the list of transitions. And you can see how they're all related. But at least in, in two of those situations, my motivation was something that happened in the outside world that I immediately recognized as an opportunity that sort of mapped with subconscious goals or, or barely conscious goals of like what I wanted to do next in my life. So I think it would be a good thing to do to actually put that on your calendar. Maybe every year or two, um, maybe a new, maybe it's a New Year's Eve, you know, New Year's Day type of thing. You look at your, your business from the previous year and you say, you know, like, well, what did I hate? And what do I hate about my job? What do I love about my job? And how do I do more of the love stuff and less of the hate stuff? Yeah, I, I have to say I'm kind of at this place and I, I don't know how deeply I want to go into this, but the consulting, be it hourly or I, I guess contracting is a better term for it. So, you know, having these contracts with clients and, you know, and I've brought this up before, it's just I don't really super enjoy it. And there are certain aspects of the podcasts and other areas of interest that I really do enjoy, but part of me is, you know, loathe a little bit to let go of, you know, some of these things, you know, I, I do enjoy writing code, but I don't necessarily want that to be how I make my money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It has this identity crisis factor. Right. You know, and so I've got a couple of things going on. I mean, I, I did Angular Remote Conf this last week and it was a resounding success. I really enjoyed it. And I think there are certain aspects of that that I could just take on and, you know, move ahead with so I could either put on remote conferences for other folks or help people organize theirs, or I could keep putting them on for coders. And any of those are interesting to me. Or I could be the, I've also had a few people come to me and say, hey, you've got a good relationship with your sponsors. Could you help me find advertisers? And I've had some pretty good success with that. And that's also very rewarding. You know, and then finally, the other thing is, is I'm having the same experience that you mentioned with the iPhone with the Apple TV. It just seems like, you know, there are so many opportunities coming out for that. And I think that uh, industry is ready to be disrupted. And I'd like to be in the middle of that. And so, you know, for me, it's okay. How do I a let go of this identity that I have as a developer 
and just accept the fact that it's not going to be what I'm doing all the time. And how do I evaluate which one is the one that I want to do? Chuck, I could, I could just chime in here before Jonathan answers to say, I mean, I've been going through a, a similar sort of process because over the last few years, as I've mentioned on the podcast many times, and we've spoken privately, I'm moving more and more, like less and less into doing day-to-day development for people and more and more doing training. And the companies have said to me, wow, you know, what's really important to us, or one of the things that's really important to us is that you're actually like a real developer in the field there and you're not just coming in and teaching. But of course, if I'm teaching a lot, <laughs> then I wonder, you know, there's the sort of imposter syndrome thought. And, and I basically stopped myself from thinking about this or worrying about this for a few reasons. First of all, I feel like when I'm teaching, I'm doing a lot of live coding and I'm getting a lot of questions from people. And that's sort of running those juices and getting them going. Mm-hmm. But the second thing is, I really like the fact that I can now work on coding projects that I define and that I set the scope for and I set the uh, timetable for. And I'm much less under the thumb of clients and their deadlines. You know, now I'm the crazy client. It's not my crazy clients who are the crazy clients. And I find that, like, once I sort of switched my thinking in that direction, I found it to be very liberating. Yeah, I was going to say something very similar, which is there's a big difference between coding for money and coding not for money. So the imposter syndrome thing that Ruben just mentioned, like, I, I get that a lot. Of, well, I, I have a similar thing where it's like one of my differentiators is that I know how to write this stuff. So I know how to talk to developers and I know how stuff is feasible and what stuff's not feasible. And having keeping up to date with the current trends in the mobile web and elsewhere in mobile is really important. And to just read a Gartner report about it doesn't count because there's a lot of BS in there. So, you know, around stuff like this, because people just they just hear terms and they just don't get it. But I stay current on that stuff by uh, exactly what you just said, by teaching and doing fun side mm-hmm. projects. And an- another thing that to sort of give you hope, Charles, is that it's happened to me pretty much every time relatively quickly. Yeah, I think without exception, it's fair to say that pretty much every time once I've decided to make a switch, you're still going to have old clients that are going to come back to you for more of what you did for them before. So it's not like you're not going to make a hard stop unless you you don't have to make a hard stop. But what you'll find for me almost immediately, like three to six months in, the stuff you didn't like before, you can't stand anymore. Like you never want to do another dev project. Whatever the old thing is, you don't want to do it ever again. You're so done with it. You've got this fun Mm -hmm. new thing that's so exciting. and Yeah, that's pretty much where I'm at now. And it's funny because... I hope my clients aren't listening. I don't I don't think they are, but I mean seriously, that's where I'm at. I'm just like I really really super don't want to do this. It's excruciating for me <laughs> to have yeah. to do it. Yeah, I mean. And uh, unfortunately that'll probably like come through at some point in some way or another I know. with your clients. Cuz like there's a limit as to how much, you know, they have plenty of employees who come in and grit their teeth and say, "Well, I'll do this cuz it's a job." But, you know, if they're hiring you as an ex- expert, I mean, people say to me all the time, oh, we love the fact that you're so enthusiastic about what you do. And I really do love what I do. And I think that that sort of is expected, even if it's unfair, it's expected to align with expertise. Yeah. So let's back up just a little bit, because I think we've all kind of gotten to that place where it's like, okay, I got to change something. So let's talk about how people get there. How do people recognize that they need to change? And then we can talk about kind of the process of of making that change, making that career move. Ruben, how did it happen with you with the training stuff? It happened very gradually. So basically, I've been doing training for nearly 20 years. I mean, basically, the story is that I was working in New York, I was working for Time Warner there. And I told them I was going to be moving to Israel. 
And they said, oh, well, you know, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to think of doing consulting. They said, great, we'll be your first client. So I had a very smooth transition to coming to Israel. Um, and it was like the best deal ever. And they were super nice to me. And while I was at Time Warner, I'd already given a whole lot of presentations in my work group there to technical people and non-technical people about different stuff I was doing. And so when I got to Israel and I started doing consulting here for different companies also, when they would say, hey, we, we want to train our group, would you mind doing that? I thought, oh, yeah, that's sort of a natural extension of it. But it was really probably like, I guess, about six years ago that I went to a training company here in Israel. And I said, you know, I'd like to do this. And I'd like to help you out with it. And at first, it sort of started slowly. It was one training course every two months, one every three months. And then they went through some reorganization. And they basically started filling up my time, I guess it was about a year or two ago, probably about two years ago. And it was just getting crazy where I was getting filled up like six months in advance. And at a certain point, I realized I'm really enjoying this. And there's clearly demand for it. Why don't I just focus on doing this instead, you know, rather than driving myself crazy with deadlines and scope issues and on, on, and on. And so I'd say it was probably about eight, ten months ago, at the same time as I left this training company and returned to being independent for the training, and that I decided to focus mostly on that. And so far, I'm just super duper happy. Uh, really, it's like been good for business, good for my my feelings. I still have here and there some development stuff I'm doing, but the closest to that on like a day to day basis is probably some, uh, like I'm the, the part-time CTO of a company in Chicago. So even there, I'm not doing, you know, day-to-day development. But it was very gradual. And it was only me sort of realizing it's okay. Like, I don't need to be ashamed of doing the training. I don't need to sort of prove myself to someone by being a, a coder every single day for someone else for pay. It is weird, though, because you feel like, you know, I, I did a similar transition. And I was like, there's something about being a, somebody who knows how to code. You're It's kind of like... At first, it was the nerdiest thing ever. When I was a little kid, it was embarrassing. It was like math team, chess team, computers team. You know, it was just so lame. But somewhere <laughs> in the intervening 35 years, it became incredibly cool. And you'd go someplace and you told somebody you're like an iOS developer or you're a web developer. And everybody wanted to ask you questions. Everybody wanted to pitch you an idea. You were like a rock star kind of. Not, you know, not exactly, not mm-hmm. quite, but. But it was, you're cool. Like all of a sudden you're cool. And we all know we're not cool. So it's so great when somebody's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's so great when somebody's like, dude, you're cool. But if you switch that over to like, I'm a trainer or I'm a strategist or I'm a business process automation specialist, all of a sudden it sounds really dull. And you're like, but can I be that? Can I, can I go back? You know, not back, but it is a weird identity thing, which I think, you know, the thing you're describing, Chuck, is a fairly i don't know do you well let me ask you is it a huge leap or are you it doesn't is it not a huge leap do you see a thread yeah so so the thing is is that i've kind of created this identity and persona around my ability to be a coder and it's not just you know whether i'm working on somebody else's stuff or my own stuff i mean that's pretty much irrelevant to that persona but the issue is is that if I make myself a ad representative to these people who I have relationships with, or if I make myself into the online conference guy, then I move away from that persona a little bit. And I feel like I've cultivated that not just in my head, but with the audiences of the other podcasts. And what I'm coming to realize after talking to them for a while is they really don't care. 
they get the great content every week. And I generally sound like I know what I'm talking about because, well, some of the time I do. You know, so overall, it, it doesn't matter beyond that. It doesn't matter whether I identify as a coder or not or whether, you know, I'm the top tech dog on it on every show, which mm-hmm. I usually am not, actually. You know, and, and that's kind of the thing is like, okay, so then am I selling out by, you know, going after something that I enjoy better and makes me more money. Chai, Ch- I mentioned this to you last last night when we were talking, so I'll share it with everyone now. It sounds like everybody knows oh. how insecure I am now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't want to say that. <laughs> no, it, 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 this process sounds it, it echoes so much what you hear in tech companies about programmers sort of hit, hitting a ceiling where they have to move into management, right? And, and everyone's always like, "Oh, I don't want to do that. I want to keep coding." And the company basically says, well, if you want to make more money, if you want to add more value to the company, then you're going to have to move into management of some sort. And so companies do all these funny things if they have a, a technical track in addition to a management track and on and yep. on. I, I worked but, for one of those companies. Right. And, and it sounds like we are sort of in our careers hitting the same thing. We just don't have a big company telling us to do it. Now, you can, in some cases, you know, continue doing the coding and, and making the money and having the satisfaction. There are people who will do that. But maybe it's also just, I, I just don't know if I want to be spending time having someone give me specifications and writing the code for them every single day. In fact, I'm increasingly convinced I don't. Because yeah, I, I, I hate that. Other stuff. Right. But when I write code for myself, whether it's solving problems, business problems, or other stuff, then it's super fun. And when people challenge me in my courses and they're like, how do I do X, Y, Z? I go, hmm. And I think and think and think. And then I, I just get, you know, that, that great rush that you get from coding. And it's in front of an audience, you know, then I feel like, okay, I've proven myself. I'm, I'm not as bad as, as, as I might have thought. But I don't need it on the day-to-day basis anymore. And I think it reflects the business needs as much as anything else in, in my career. Yep. Well, the other thing is, is that, and so I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of take this because for me, seeing the need for this transition comes in from basically, so I, I started podcasting because I like talking about programming. You know, I, I started to make that transition while I was still making job moves while I was still working for companies. And then eventually I went freelance, you know, and then the podcasting really started taking off. And the more I start doing it, I mean, the podcasts are still exciting for me. I still enjoy doing them a lot. And so I want to make them much more of the focus of what I'm doing. And my coding benefits from the shows and the shows benefit from my, you know, my coding experience growing. And so I'm realizing, and, and this is, you know, this is why I transitioned into coding from running tech support and why, why I went into tech support from doing server sysadmin work is that I started doing the other stuff and I really enjoyed it. And so I did it more and more and I enjoyed it more and more. And, and that's kind of where I am with the podcasts and some of the other things. And so the opportunities presented by the uh, remote conferences or doing the the advertising and selling is that I get that personal interaction that I enjoy from the podcasts and I can extend that into the other areas because, you know, it kind of dovetails nicely there and it makes the podcast kind of my business and I can make it the focus, which is what I want to do. And so what I guess I'm driving at is, is that every time I've made this transition is this looks really exciting. I start digging into it and it becomes very exciting. It becomes the thing that I want to do. And so I move into and do it. But uh, making this particular transition is a little bit trickier because in this case, it's my business. It's not just, oh, I'm just going to go find a job where they're going to pay me to do the other thing, which has been pretty much every other time. Mm. And so 
it's like, okay, so do I get in there now and tell people, okay, I'm, I'm a podcaster first and a programmer second. And does that affect the credibility on the shows? And then the other thing is, is, you know, can I do this and not put my, you know, my family and my livelihood at risk? And I think most of this is actually in my head. I, I think honestly, the answer to both of those is no, it's not going to affect credibility. And yes, your family's going to be better off if you do it. I think you're right. But, you know, I have this hurdle to get past because if it doesn't work out, then my brain goes to this worst case scenario where we're homeless, which isn't going to happen. Yeah, you just go back to COVID. Well, that's right. That, that's in many ways the beauty and the luxury that we have with a background in coding. I mean, I'm guessing, Chuck, let's say you work on podcasting for two or three years in virtual conferences and so forth, and you hate it. For whatever reason, you hate it. And you say, forget it. I'm going back to coding. I find it really hard to believe that you're going to have a tough time finding work. I mean, the industry is yeah. just desperate for warm bodies right now. <laughs> and I mean, you're a warm body who knows something. Yeah. And so we really have the luxury to, to try a lot of different things because of that. Yeah. So I'll tell you where I'm at now with this. And, and I, I know I've kind of monopolized this a little bit talking about me, but the place that I got to yesterday, because I was really thinking about this yesterday and just kind of agonizing over some of the details. And then I went golfing with my father-in-law and relaxed. And my brain kind of said, oh, I've got all these great ideas now. And, and the main thing was, was that, you know, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to make a plan for each one. And then, you know, the roadmap that looks the most exciting is the fork in the trail I'm going to take. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Look, and sometimes these things are big and obvious, and sometimes they're small and non-obvious. And sometimes I mean, it doesn't matter which fork in the road you take, because they all lead to a good place. Yeah, as right. long as you take one and don't think about it right. for 10 years. That's right. Look, I mean, I, I've been, you know, I've been doing all this uh, training in different programming languages and technologies, and now I'm starting the whole sort of training trainers thing. And I've even been thinking in my training, well, what direction should I go in? Because I, I doubt there's going to be a market, I mean, maybe, the, maybe I'm wrong, as much as, say, the Python market is exploding now, there is going to come a time when not everyone and their brother is going to want an intro Python course. So I looked around. I said, well, you know, people seem to be moving in the direction of data science. I should really spend like a few months really boning up on that. And basically, that was a few weeks ago. And I got to one of my clients last week, and they said, and I mentioned to them that I'm going to be doing some courses in data science. And they said, oh, our CEO just announced that everyone in the company needs to learn to be a data scientist. <laughs> and I thought, Okay, I'm definitely in the right direction here. And so now it's obvious to me I, I need to you know, put the pedal to the metal there because I need to get ahead of the curve. And sometimes, like, I couldn't have necessarily predicted that or that it would happen that way. But now that I've been you know, given the signs, as it were, okay, I'm, I'm going to you know, move, move in that direction a bit and we'll see where that takes me. I guess the question that I'm trying to get answered is, and I'm curious what, what Jonathan thinks on this too, because the transition that he talked about that seems most interesting to me was when he went from web to mobile web, you know, and so you kind of talk about these decisions like, well, I decided to look into this and then I pursued it and then it worked out. And I'm wondering, okay, well, how do you make that decision? How do you say, okay, this is the thing that I want to go and pursue, or this is the thing that I at least want to explore. How do you make that decision? And at what point do you say, yep, this is the one for me? There's something about my personality that I know is not common because when I'm coaching people about this stuff, I'm the only person that I know that's ever had it. But when I see something, I just know. Like, I mean, the iPhone was big news, of course. But I was like, I don't care if that thing flops. That's all I want to do. I don't know why. And I talk to people all the time, every day. 
that are in the situation that sounds a little bit, it's closer to what you're talking about where they're like, Oh, but I could do all these things. I have so many opportunities. And I'm like, well, which one sounds like the most fun? I don't know. Which one do you think would make you the most money? I don't know. You know, would you, would you rather work with these kinds of clients or these kinds of clients? Well, I like them both. And it's like, I don't know why I don't suffer from that, but I don't. So Mm -hmm. I guess I'm lucky in that sense. Well, I'm generally that way. This is the first time where I've actually looked at it and go gone. I don't know what you want to pick. Well, is this the first time you've tried to make a decision like that while you have kids? No. Because like for me, all the decisions that I listed, I had no kids. So it was Mm. it, it was less of a I had no kids and two incomes. So there was tons of safety net that wouldn't have changed a thing. Because uh, in terms of my the light bulb moment, I guess that like like when when Steve Jobs held that iPhone up or when when FileMaker announced their PHP API, I was like, oh, this is perfect. It was just so lucky. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to be the dude. I am going to be the guy that knows that the best. It's funny because, Jonathan, I'm a very much still, uh, oh, I'm going to try 100,000 things at once and not focus. And it's really hard as much as I talk about, oh, I'm focusing on training. No, I've got all the time, like 10 other minor projects that I'm working on. But I also, I saw the iPhone and I was like, wow, that's really interesting. I would never want to stake my business on that. But, and it could be that it would have flopped. But because of people like you, it didn't. And because you took the risk, uh, like you won. Mm. See, and the other thing is, is I've, I've always been much more like that where I just pull the trigger and go. And what's really funny is of the three options that I mentioned, the one that, you know, if, if I had to say, you know, I just know, I just know that this is the one that I want to do. It's the one that is the least sure thing. Which one? Uh, that would be the mobile TV development stuff. Mm, interesting. Yeah, it's funny. Like <laughs> Apple TV, like you, know, you have these two products from Apple, the well, iPhone and Apple TV. Well, and so far, at least Apple TV hasn't seemed to take off, although yeah. it might. Well, so they just announced tvOS, and so they're opening it up for apps. But ultimately, it's not a play to write apps for tvOS. It's actually a play to write... What I want to do is I want to help media companies yes. be on all the platforms. Yes. Right? So you I want... think that's the riskiest? I think it's the one that will pay off the biggest if I get it to work. But that, seems like, that seems like a slam dunk to me. It's, it's the one that I don't understand as well. Oh, okay. That might have a lot to do with it. Okay. But so, I, I think that that is running remote conferences for people. I mean, yeah. we just have different... Obviously, we have different comfort zones. Well, and running them for other people is like the bottom of the list. I enjoy running them for myself. I see. Okay. And then the the other option where I'm helping with all the relationships I have out in the in programming land, finding advertisers for blogs and stuff and other email lists. And, you know, I, I found advertisers for a fair number of those. But the other thing is, is I think I can systemize that and then just maintain the relationships and I won't have to spend a lot of time on it. Mm-hmm. But but I understand those markets. I understand the players. I understand all the people involved. And I know how to do it. I know how I can do it and make a bunch of money at it. I see what you mean. So, like, the path is much more obvious. Yes. Whereas yeah. with the media companies, I mean, especially with podcasters and stuff, I mean, if I can do this at a price point that they can afford and I can solve this problem, I mean, I will I will have more customers than I know what to do with. Mm. 
And if I go for the bigger media companies, then I can knock it out of the park and just solve those problems. And I think that's really the more interesting set of people to solve the problem for. Mm. And, and I honestly, I think it's the more profitable of the three. It's just a matter of, okay, you know, and, and it's so exciting to me because there are all of these opportunities out there. And, you know, I don't hear a whole lot of people talking about them, but I hear consumers talking about using the devices. And so if yeah. they could, if they could get the media on there, then it'd be a no brainer for their audiences to just turn them on. Oh yeah. Cause it's oh. a built in channel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like, I've messed around with it. I'm just trying to get my stuff on Roku is just a complete nightmare. Yeah. But there's, there's, there's Roku and TiVo and Fire Stick and Chromecast mm -hmm. and Apple TV and yeah. probably a half dozen other set-top boxes that I haven't thought of off the top of my head. Right. You know, and then there's the iPhone and the iPad and the Android and the Android tablets and the Kindle Fire. And a lot of those can be solved in, in very similar ways because Kindle Fire is essentially Android. You know, and then you just have back-end services that allow these media companies to manage their library. Yeah, I mean, I think any of the things that you mentioned could scale way, way up. Yeah. But it would be a different kind of work. Like the high end for the, the media play is like getting in contact at TBS or, or yeah, uh, you know, and just like doing a, a six figure project after six figure project after six figure project where maybe you are putting together a dev team. Maybe you're building some back end software. Maybe you're just advising them about what to do. Mm -hmm. And then the other stuff, the stuff that's more directed at podcasters would be a lot more info producty, you know, where you were creating guides and books and uh, video courses and stuff that you could sell, you know, stuff that would sell while you're asleep. It was a lot, it'd be a lot lower touch, but you could still make tons of money. I mean, I, when I started my first podcast, I would have paid dearly for somebody to just tell me what to do. Like, what mic should I use? How should I fix this horrible audio? How should I even record the conversation with another person? Like mm -hmm. all of that research is you Google for it and you don't get a, I, at least then there was not a clear, there might be now a clear answer to all that stuff, but there's so many aspects to podcasting. Like you said, you know, getting sponsors, do I use Patreon? What do I do? How do I make money? How do I get into the new and noteworthy in iTunes? Do I need to care about Stitcher? There's like a thousand things to think about. Yep. And it's just, it'd be such a different play. Like that would be lots and lots and lots of little sales. And then the other end of the spectrum, the media stuff, like the TVOS would be two sales a year, three sales a year, mm -hmm. six figures. Yep. Yeah. So what does the dear listener care about all this? The dear listener. <laughs> should, <laughs> oh, wait, a while. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're going to publish this. <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't, the private would probably signed off by now. But in case, for the last person who's still listening. I think there is a, an overarching point here. So I think going, th going through the weeds like that is, I think everything that you just said is pretty common. It's like, that's the wheel that's turning in people's brain. Cause you know, I talk to a lot of people that are trying to either grow their business or make the leap from full-time gig, you know, W2 job to go solo. And they don't even know where to start sometimes, especially the younger people. Because they, they're like, I can do anything. I love everything. You know, I just want the one that makes the most money. And I'm like, I don't know. It's like, if you're going to do, just for an example, if you're going to do good content marketing, it's going to make it a lot easier if you're passionate about the product. So if you're not, if, if you, 
you get to have a good reason to not pick the one that you're the most passionate about. Yeah. Because you're just going to burn out. you just be like, ugh, I have to write another email. Or, you know, because you have to do sales. You have to do marketing. If you're going to run a business, you have to do all that stuff. I don't care what the business is. And you're not, it's just going to be so tedious if you're kind of like meh about the thing. So you are clearly most passionate about one of them, it sounds like. Yes. So that seems like the obvious choice. And like I said before, you're not going to, your dev work's not going to dry up. You're going to have customers like, coming after you for years and years to come. I can tell you that for sure. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, remember that thing you built five years ago? The server blew up. Yep. So it's not it's not necessarily even like that scary. of a, It doesn't have to be a scary financial thing. Yeah. For me, it's just the thing that I know the least about. Right. But at the same but, time, it's a new enough market to where if I work harder than 80% of the rest of the people, then I'll, you know. Right. And and you're knowing the least is still way more than a lot of other people know. Yeah, that's true too. Yeah, it's like when you get those recruiter email, e- emails where they want a React expert, React Native experts needed immediately. <laughs> yeah. That just came out. I know, right? <laughs> there is no expert. I, I totally love those too. You know, they want 10 years experience in a three-year-old technology. Right. Yeah, it's ridiculous. No, but this, this sort of self-evaluation though, and considering, I, I, I think I should definitely put it on my calendar. Just, you know, spend a day at some point mapping out what have I worked on the last year? Mm-hmm. What was most interesting and what was most profitable? And take the Venn diagram of those, like where the, the intersection of that is where I should push forward on. You know, hopefully there is an overlap there. Hopefully the things that are most interesting are not the least profitable and vice versa. Well, the other thing is, is for me, the trigger point was, okay, I've got this new client and why am I telling myself, oh, I just don't want to do this. I, what, <laughs> I am trying to put this off with everything I've got and I know I have to get it done tonight. Mm. That's not the worst. For you, what is it? The thing that you just dread every time? It, it's usually the client work and it's usually some dumb little feature that is neither interesting nor fun to work on. Or on even an, better, a, that you disagree with. On an app that I could honestly give a rat's mm-hmm. behind about. Yeah. And for people who, for all intents and purposes, I'm tired of nagging me about it. Right. Yeah. For me, it's proposals. It was I was like a god of procrastinating yeah. writing proposals. Yep. I mean, the other thing for me, too, is that, I mean, I have this one client, and he'll ask me about something, and I'll, I'll tell him, look, you know, I don't have time today. And then I get pestered about it. And then it makes me want to do it less. <laughs> right. So to the listener, I mean, I heard this, I, I read this hokey thing once that had nothing to do with, I think it was more to do with like your general happiness. But uh, if you get into the habit of every day putting a happy face or a smiley face on your calendar, like how, how the day went, and then you go back and look and see what you did that day to see like, you know, you get to the end of the day, if you feel like awesome and energized, then you're like, huh, what did I do today that, you know? Oh, I went to the gym or, uh, I did a bunch of coaching sessions or, uh, you have a, a frowny face day and it's like, Oh, I had to write two proposals. You know, it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, procrastinating alone, like if you, when you know you're procrastinating, you are obviously not excited about your job. Like the thing that you're about, you're, you're trying to avoid doing is clearly something you should put on your list of like, figure out how to make a job for myself where I never have to do this. Yep. And then look at all the things that you would rather be doing and figure out how you can make one of those work. Absolutely. So now I'd love to loop back because I'm sure a lot of people listening will have this same problem if they, if and when they ever make a, a, let's call it a pivot, like you're talking about. 
the identity crisis part and that you, you actually use the word sell out. And I think you said it a couple of times. I think it's a hundred percent true. No one cares except for you. I don't think anybody cares. Are there situations where that's not true? Like I don't, most people don't even know how I identify myself. Yeah. So, so who is this imagined rabble that is going to descend upon me if I decide to do marketing and sales as my main career path? I, I would go further than that. Chuck, I find it really hard to believe that even if you spend the next 10 years working in marketing and sales, if you're in the tech sector, people are still going to think of you as like, oh, that programmer guy, but he's now doing sales. Yeah, right? or he's a sales guy who actually knows what we do. Yep. Right, right. And that's just the thing, right? Is if people are getting from me what they want or expect, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Plus one on that. And the other thing is, is that if I, we're going to use the word pivot, but you know, if I pivot into this other area, it doesn't mean that I can't keep doing the things that keep me relevant in the markets that I serve with my podcasts. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction that comes up a lot, which is there's a split between how somebody like us markets ourselves, what we decide to focus on in our marketing to build this gravitational pull of ideal clients. You know, we want to magically pull ideal clients to us for this new thing that we're going to do. Marketing is not what we actually do all day. So how, the picture we paint of ourselves in the marketing is a very small or, you know, maybe not very small, but it's a slice of the overall picture of like what our day is like, especially when you're going through a transition like this. So there were plenty of times like right after t- transition from like, you know, I said to myself, up, oh, it's all mobile web from here on out. Can't wait. This is gonna be great. So what do I do? I immediately, I get the, you know, I go wait in line to get an iPhone. I immediately start experimenting with it. I blog about nothing else, but what I find out about doing stuff on iOS, but I'm still like, I'm literally doing no project work around mobile web. I'm 100% pure desktop style lamp web coding, not even Ajax. Just like meaning like the, the thing that was paying your bills was not the thing that you were establishing your creds in. Exactly. And then eventually, I mean, I got lucky. I've gotten lucky a couple times. Eventually, I uh, had an idea for a book and I pitched it to, I ran into a guy at a geek meetup, Providence Geeks. Go Geeks. And <laughs> he's like, oh yeah, I'm a senior editor at O'Reilly. And I was like, no way. I'm a guy who has an idea for a tech book. And so I just said, here's my idea. I can't remember what it was. He came back and he's like, yep, yeah, no one wanted that. Got any other ideas? And I was like, yeah, I've got an idea for an iPhone web book. He's like, that sounds good. And then, you know, six months later, it was, it was like flying off the bookshelves. So I got lucky in the sense that the timing was really good and that I had done enough. It, research sounds over. It's like, it was, I wouldn't call it research. I did enough tinkering that I knew what the deal was. And since it was brand spanking new, there were not that many experts out there. In fact, I can still, I can point to like the four or five other people that were doing it back then. It was like Brian Fling. Max Furtman, Brian LaRue and the phone gap guys, Remy, it, that was about it. There, there were others, but there were some, like if you compare that niche to the general web population at the time, it was like, I was, I would never get a client as just general, never get a big client as a general web developer. It would always be like, you know, small, medium businesses. But then all of a sudden I'm in this small pool of, of experts globally, write a big book for O'Reilly about it. I had literally done no projects other than personal fun practice things. And uh, just one thing leads to another. And then all of a sudden, I'm getting phone calls from like really big companies. 
I think, by the way, that, Jonathan, it's not just, I mean, I, there's always some luck and some circumstance in this, but the fact that you were sort of following what's going on in the tech world and thinking consciously, subconsciously about the directions of the business world and what you're interested in doing and then trying it, right? Because some, someone has to be the expert and those experts started off knowing zero and you were able to sort of see the trend a little bit before everyone else and that worked really well for you. Yeah, that's really all there was to it. I was like, huh, this seems like a great idea. And you know what? It was more than that. It wasn't just a great idea. It seemed like a huge opportunity. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure what the idea was, but I'm like, that is a gigantic opportunity. It's not if like... If you think back, like when the iPhone first came out, there were no apps. So it was just basically yeah. like a phone with a browser. Yeah, you could make you could make home screen web apps with it. So it, when Jobs announced it, and this is part of my massive excitement, he came out and he's like, and for iOS, it wasn't even called iOS, it was called iPhone OS. He goes, and the way that you build apps for iPhone is with web technologies. And everybody in the room was like, and, uh, oh, no, they were all like, <laughs> what? Because they were all Mac developers and they were mad because they didn't know how to do web development. So I was stoked. I was like, awesome. Totally doing that from now on. And then, of course, they backtracked on that about eight months later. And they said, oh, never mind. We're going to have an app store. But it didn't matter because by that time, it was already done deal. And I played around with Xcode when it came out. And I was like, web developers are not going to do this. The vast majority of web developers are never going to do this. So there's going to be this giant pool of web developers who want to get their stuff on these phones. And so I wrote a book about it. That's, that's when I wrote the book. It was basically a phone gap book. Very smart. But I think the interesting thing out of that is that I was not making any money at it when I got the book deal. It was just I had tinkered. So, Chuck, I mean, if you tinkered yeah. around with that stuff and you just started like, oh, I made a couple proof of concepts. Well, and, and that's what I want to do. The place that this came from was that I have been working on building devchat.tv for a long time. And I want my channel to be everywhere. You know, I want the devchat.tv channel to be on everyone's TV. Right. And so just thinking about that was, oh, okay, well, I bet there are other people who need that same thing. And, wow, that's really exciting prospect, you know, that I can be on everyone's TV and everyone's phone and everyone's iPad and everybody's everything. And then just run it all off of the same backend service. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think honestly, if I have some proofs of concept out there and can say, look, you know, go check out the DevChat TV app for all of this stuff, you know, and I can write about my experience building it and write about my experience, you know, learning about it and getting into the markets and things like that. Yeah, that's extremely valuable to a lot of people. Yeah, it's huge. So, Chuck, let me ask this, and this might not be a fair question, but I mean, we're all, as, as you know, independent consultants, we're running not only small businesses, but basically family businesses. How much do you consult with your wife? I mean, I guess your kids probably aren't big enough to talk to them about this, but like how much you consult with your wife about the direction of the business and considerations and how much impact does that have on what you do? I talk to her about it and I usually get the, well, that all sounds interesting. Do whatever you think. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds familiar. Okay. Yeah. Same exact here. You know, I mean, she's interested. She wants to know what I'm doing, but, you know, the bills get paid. And so, yeah, so that's kind of the deal. (laughs) So the takeaway is follow your passion and reevaluate it every year or two. Yeah. I don't think follow your passion is globally great advice, 
But as technologists, I think you have a whole lot of leeway that a lot of other professionals don't. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, like, I would, I would, this is coming from a musician too. That was foolish. <laughs> <laughs> that, I was following Why, but, my passion. But Jonathan, yeah. there are rock musicians who earn millions a year. Yes, there are. So, so that proves that you can make millions in, in music, right? That proves that you can. <laughs> doesn't mean you can, but in general, somebody can. Right. I could win the lottery too. <laughs> So yeah, that's a, that's a good qualifier. I think if you're, if you are technically inclined, you know, developer of some kind, then yeah. Yeah. And and there are other fields that are in demand too, but you know, yeah, just recognize that, you know, there, there are moves that you can make that can be well calculated to get you what you want. Anywho, should we get to some picks? Sure. Reuven, do you have some picks for us? Sure. I got uh, one pick. I think it might even be v- vaguely related to uh, the topic we had today. So uh, I know we've mentioned many times on this podcast, the Startups for the Rest of Us podcast. And, um, you know, Rob and Mike, and they tell us all about what they're up to and everything. And I guess it was as of this recording about two weeks ago, they had a whole uh, show talking about how one of the co-hosts has decided to sort of throw in the towel on his uh, software project. Uh, Mike decided to, as, as they called mm-hmm. the show, moving on from Audit Shark. And first of all, I give them incredible credit for dealing with this so publicly because it can be very painful uh, personally, financially, as an ego thing. But I thought it was certainly very useful to hear when do you actually sort of declare a project dead or when do you walk away from it and you say, look, I'm just not going to put more money and more resources into it. And for those of us who have side projects or try things or thinking of trying things uh, or thinking of trying actual products and selling them, there comes a point when you might have to actually walk away and call it a loss. And so I, I definitely uh, suggest listening to that episode and hearing some of the considerations and how to reach that conclusion if you need to. All right, Jonathan, what are your picks? I listened to that episode too, incidentally, and I thought it was terrific. But I've met both Rob and Mike before at MicroConf. So. Uh, my pick is Remark.io. I guess uh, last week or the previous recording, you guys had Jeremy Green on, and due to scheduling conflicts, I couldn't be on. I was super disappointed. So I wanted to take the opportunity to tell people that Remark.io is, I use it all the time. I think it's amazing. It's deceptively simple type of thing. Basically, you write Markdown files, and you can just drop them in a, a Dropbox folder on your hard drive, and a PDF just magically appears right there. And so you can open up the PDF, and it's like fully justified, hyphenated, designed it's just a great looking pdf so whenever i do like reports or proposals or any kind of white paper type stuff i'm doing an ebook using it so you you, you just type markdown which is the easiest thing in the world drop it in this folder and boom it turns into like this gorgeous pdf which looks like a lot nicer than uh, raw markdown or even html uh, so if people if people out there are working on info products or you write reports for your clients or anything like that, you should give it a try uh, because it makes the, something about it makes the information feel more real or more weighty or more valuable. And it's, uh, it's just so easy to try it. So remark.io, that's R-E-M-A-R-Q.io. And Jonathan, you've, you've used it for book length projects? Yes, it's, it's great. I've written, if you count editions, second editions, I've written, I think, five books. And I'm working on a new one that is going to be self-published. The other ones were through traditional publishers. 
And on one of the more recent ones for O'Reilly, they did have a system in place where I could push to an SVN repo and add some gibberish to the end of the line to force it to create a fully styled PDF. And it was great. Like the problem though was that I had to write it in something called DocBook, which is a extremely verbose XML <laughs> format. Really hard. But I loved that feature of having it like formatted like the final book. And something about it made it way easier for me to proofread my own work. And I really missed that when I started working on my own thing uh, or my self-published thing. So as I was typing it up, I was like, oh, why don't I use Remark for this? So I, I wrote each chapter as like its own Remark document. And then I just have a short command line thing that, you know, concatenates the files into one file and copies them into this, the Remark directory in Dropbox on my computer. And you wait about 10 seconds and the PDF shows up and just get, I can like proof my own work. It's amazing. Has a table of contents generated automatically. It's great. I've been trying really, to make softcover.io work, and you're really tempting me to look at this other system. Uh, I haven't heard of that one. I have not heard of that one, but uh, the table of contents thing is clutch. It's really nice. It takes all the you can you can go on the website and configure the stuff however you want it and tweak all the styles however you want, but you don't need to. So it's just been I love it. All right, I'm going to throw a couple of picks out there. So as I mentioned earlier in the show, I went golfing with my father-in-law yesterday, and then we came back home, and I had ordered an over-the-air antenna for the TV. My wife misses watching her shows, and you can get some of them on Hulu Plus and some of them on Netflix, but the, the new seasons are starting up, and she can't get everything. So I started looking into that. I went on Amazon. I ordered this over-the-air antenna. And it got four channels. Two of them were Spanish, which I don't speak, and neither does my <laughs> wife. One of them was old black and white movies, and the other one was something else. I don't even remember. And I'm just like, yeah, this ain't going to cut it. And my sister-in-law, who used to live about a mile and a half from us, she had something very similar, and she was able to get like 30 or 40 channels. And so we tried a different antenna. We went to Walmart and picked one up, and that didn't work either. And we're like trying to figure out what's going on. And finally, um, I get online and I found a website. There's one out there called Antenna Web. And I found that it really wasn't that helpful because it only listed the channels that we could actually get. But it didn't list anything else, any other options. There's another one called TV Fool. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And if you go in there and you put in your address, it'll tell you what kind of antennas you need to get what kinds of channels. And so uh, you just put in your address and it works out. So I went in there, put it in, and uh, it had one green channel and two yellow channels, which means that you can pick them up with those over-the-air antennas. They look kind of like a thick piece of plastic paper, and you can just hang them somewhere in your house, and they'll pick up those signals just fine. They're omni omnidirectional, which means you don't have to point them at the transmitter. And then there were about... I would say 15 channels that were red. And what that meant was that you actually have to have an antenna that points at the transmitter and carries the signal down into your house to get those channels. And those were the channels we were trying to get. And it turns out that where I live, we're just right barely in the shadow of the mountain that the transmitter's on. And so effectively, we didn't have direct line of sight. But if you have one of these directional antennas, then it will gain up the right signal and, you know, enhance it so that you can actually get the signal to your TV. And so we went and picked up one of those this morning. 
yes, I was at Lowe's at 6.30 this morning. And we hooked that <laughs> up, and it worked great. And then we got a little signal booster to push the signal to the rest of the house. And so we now have about 20 channels that we will willingly watch. In other words, I dropped the shopping channels and the Spanish channels. Yeah, so now my kids can watch PBS and stuff, and my wife can watch her shows on CBS and NBC. So now the only problem to solve is to get a DVR system on that that doesn't cost $300. So anyway, overall, I'm, I'm happy with that. I put a link to the antenna that we got at Lowe's, which is a hardware store in the U.S. if you're not familiar, and uh, the link to TV Fool if you are looking to uh, cut the cable in wherever you're at. I, I must say, Chuck, my favorite part of this whole story of yours is that you describe it as an over-the-air antenna. Like We've now reached the stage in modern culture where the assumption is that you get TV signals through cables or through satellite, that this idea of broadcast over the air is still is now kind of exotic. Yeah, it is kind of exotic. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, so we have this antenna sticking out over the end of the roof, about two feet. Weird. Yeah, I know. We actually took the dish off the house because we canceled Dish Network, saved some money. So we pulled the dish down, and then we just put the antenna on the post that the dish was attached to. Thank you, Dish Network, for at least installing that. Anyway, yeah, I, I, I guess we're done, so we'll wrap up the show. Uh, thanks for chatting. Catch everyone next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join the conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum.